Welcome to the Open Book Unbound podcast. Morning, Marjorie. Hey, Claire, how are you? I'm good. Start of a new year. Hard to imagine that the last one went so quickly, right? This is a bonus podcast to make up for missing one earlier in the year that will be coming to your ears on this New Year's Day. Welcome to 2024. And thanks to our fantastic lead reader, Lorraine, who runs our group up in Koyak and in Ullapool, who wrote and submitted this story for our call out for new writing last time we did one. And we just love this story and wanted to feature it. So thanks, Lorraine, again for writing it and letting us have it. Yeah, and then we're going to follow it up by a poem from Neil Campbell from his first collection called Moontide, which is a real favourite of mine. And in fact, when I read the story, the first poem that came to mind, which would pair beautifully, we hope you'll agree, was that poem. But before we get into the story and poem, let's talk about New Year's Day traditions. Do you get in the sea? Do you climb up a hill? For a long time, I used to go up Arthur's seat often on my own because my lazy family refused to get out of their pajamas. But latterly, it's really a sea dip on, on New Year's Day. How about you, Claire? Yeah, I mean, I've been known to dip in either the reservoir and there was one year where we went up for the sun rising, didn't we? So I think we were there for it was about seven in the morning and had to crack the ice to get in. And the other big tradition for New Year's Day is to have a steak pie. I don't know if that's one that you follow. So yeah, that would be a sort of Scottish tradition is that you would be making the, the steak pie on the 30th or the 31st to eat on New Year's Day. Ah, that's new to me. So I see you learn something new every year. I've lived here 20 years and that's new. Makes sense, especially if you've had a, a roast over the holidays, you can be using that up. Lover of leftovers as I am. And it's also a sort of, you know, you put the work in to the prep for the pie the previous day or even on the 30th and so it really is just bung it in the oven on the 1st so if you've had a late night and you've been out partying which I have to confess I don't do as much as I used to but it's a simple nutritious warming meal without too much effort Okay, well, back to the sea, because these pieces today are largely about the sea, which were perfectly timed for this New Year's sort of blast, as it were, and starting off afresh in the way that I certainly know you and I prefer. The title of this piece is True Tales from the Sea by a Fisherman's Wife. His face is weathered, leathered and lined by the sea, salt crystallizes in the creases of his skin behind his ears. I joke that the ocean runs through his veins. When I am in labor with our first child, I press my face against his hand. My sense of smell is heightened, and I tell him I can smell the herring he uses for bait on his skin. But it has been two days, and many hand washes since he was last in the boat, and I realize that the smell is not on him, but part of him. He has never been afraid of the sea, not even at the bow of the island where the big waves roll in from the Atlantic. Here, timing is everything. Get it right, and a fleet of creels containing inky black lobsters will be hauled aboard. Get it wrong, and the Orion will be pitched onto ancient rocks, the small boat re-described as driftwood. The contest exhilarates him as does fishing in the turbulent waters foaming at the base of the high rock, here beneath the faces of craggy giants watching from the towering cliff face is where the sweetest lobsters are caught. 
On good days, as many as one hundred of his two hundred creels will yield a prize. When the fishing is poor, the catch is in single figures. But no matter how rich or scarce the bounty, he gives thanks for every lobster caught, his murmured appreciation caught on the wind and carried to Poseidon, lord of the sea, protector of seafarers. Twice he has drowned, and twice Poseidon has shown mercy and released my husband from his watery gasp. The once he was a boy, breathing in water as he sunk to the depths, feet first. Desperate, his father reached after him, pulling his son to the surface by his hair, then pumping the sea from his lungs. The twice was when he was a man, a father himself. Unconscious when the dive company loaded him onto the Coast Guard helicopter, he was blind when he came to, the darkness lasting fearful hours. The consultant said they'd scanned his brain and found nothing. I laughed. After a moment, the doctor saw the joke, and he laughed too. The day he drowned and came back was Easter Sunday. I took to calling him Lazarus. Lazarus tells me that when he stopped struggling and surrendered himself to drowning, it was a peaceful experience, that it only hurt when they brought him back, though he's glad they did. Within a week, he returns to the sea, fishing for lobsters. Will we stop there? Yeah, let's stop there for a bit. Gosh, that's a thought, isn't it, to to go back to the ski within a week? Yeah, I think if it becomes part of you, though, I think of that John... Bellany painting of his own father in the National Gallery. And if you don't know it, it's online. It's digitized so you can go find it. And he's holding a picture of himself at sea. And the interesting story behind it is that John's mother was so worried about his father drowning his sea as a fisherman, she asked him to stop going out and he did. There's a real feeling of something in that image, a longing or a loss of self or something. And the thing he's choosing to hold in the portrait is a picture of himself at sea, which I think, you know, kind of feeds into this idea that you are, for fishermen, so much of who you are is tied up with being on the water. And that sense of respect for the sea and thankfulness that you find frequently in fishermen, you know, it's almost Mm. inbuilt part of their psyche comes through really clearly in the story, I think. And also, it's a weird thing to have something be so part of who you are that you have no control over. I guess it's a bit like farming in some ways, because you can do everything right and still have no crop um, because of the weather or pet disease or pests or whatever. But in the sea is the same, I guess. You can do everything right and still, you know, you don't have a cat. Whereas in the outside world, we have much more control over our successes, I think. Yeah, we might think we have more, but I think as well in this, I get a real sense of enormity of the sea and the power of the sea, which I know when you think about it. And, you know, if you've ever been standing on Portobello Beach on a, on a windy day, you have no doubt about the, the power and the force of the sea. But I do think that there are times when we see it as much more benign. But this this has a a lurking that you can't take anything for granted that's written in. And I think particularly places, some places in the British Isles, particularly those that meet the Atlantic, are wild, you know, and um, you you just know that you're not in control. You know, I remember swimming on off, off Ling, really in a time when I'd re- properly, well, not properly see swimming, I wouldn't say not, you know, long distance swimming, but swimming and being so aware of the currents there that are incredibly strong, suddenly being afraid 
you know, swam in the Pacific and swam all sorts of places, but suddenly I thought this is beyond my power, my own power, which is is a really remarkable thing. And even, you know, in October, when I took two of my children out to California to see my family, we spent a fair bit of time in the Pacific and lordy those waves. <laughs> you know, we went to the beginner's beaches for surfers. And even then you had to know how to use the waves to get back in. And at one point, the girls I had with me got caught in a riptide and they didn't know it, you know, but they weren't able, the lifeguards had to go get on their boards and show them how to use a wave to get back into shore. And you, know, you often think riptides are kind of the stories we hear that they drag you out to sea and so quickly and things, but this wasn't that. They were just playing and they hadn't realized. And the only they only realized because the lifeguards told them that they weren't going to be able to try and get in if they tried. So, you know, that idea of knowing enough about using the sea. And this idea that he's twice drowned, you know, when I first read that, I had to read it again to make sure I hadn't misunderstood. But as you read on, you do realise he has drowned twice. And the idea that it was Poseidon that decided that he wasn't going to die at this point in his life. I think that's, it's a really interesting nod to something that you don't necessarily think burly fishermen are going to, and maybe he's not burly as well, there's me projecting, but more fishermen who have so kind of are pragmatic about their daily lives that are going to nod to, but there you are. And that idea too, that it was painful coming back is a really interesting thing, that that's when pain sets in is when you're brought back. I love the funnies so far in this story, given that it's such a serious topic, you know, what a master of writing to be able to make us laugh about the brain scan and laugh about Lazarus, you know, in a in the midst of bringing someone back from the other side, effectively. You know, there's, that does something to the storytelling, I think, or tells us something about their relationship or the writer. She's done such a good job at this character that we are we are with her and making light of the fact that he's not only almost died, but had to be brought back from the other side. That ability to take you to the brink of being shocked and upset and then just inject a little bit of humour to give you a moment's relief before you carry on is a real skill. And of course, it's mimicking what's happening in the story. But I love that kind of ease. You know, you can't imagine in your own circumstance, if you've almost died laughing about, you know, a brain scan or laughing about being called Lazarus. And yet that tells us so much about them as people kind of wearing things lightly, which I think would be a real gift. I'm not sure it's one I'd have, but I luckily have yet to be tested on this front. Shall I read on? Yeah. He comes home one evening, hair tousled by wind, thickened by brine, eyes wild with excitement his words as tangled as seaweed on the strand line. When he calms, he describes a pod of orcas swimming alongside him, their surging leviathan bodies dwarfed tiny Orion. He was aware that with the smallest of tail flicks, they could smash the boat to smithereens and make a plaything of his body. The orcas knew it too. He felt his smallness, his vulnerability, but although awed by the mighty predators, there was no fear, not even when he saw that they were watching him, that one in particular was studying him. Perhaps it was Poseidon in one of his shape-shifting forms, checking him out. Many lobsters later, I am the one in turbulent waters. There are five of us in a boat, a 21-foot skiff, clinker-built, we are rowing across a stretch of the North Atlantic known as the Minch. Our passage from Stornoway on the Isle of Lewis to Ullapool on the mainland is some 50 miles. We're rowing the Minch to raise awareness of MS, 
a disease prevalent in our corner of the world. We set out in the early hours when the heavens are dark and deep with stars and the sea is tranquil. At dawn, we are joined by a gang of carousing dolphins. Their joy is infectious, but as we propel the skiff into open waters, the swell gets up and the wind is against us. The palette of our world is muted by overcast skies. Vibrant blues and greens have become hues of grey. The ocean pulses deep and full, sending wave after relentless wave, each one hitting us, beam on, making it difficult to roll. Every seventh wave splashes over the gunwales, drenching our bodies, flooding the boat. The cocks and the stroke bail water from the bottom of the skiff while the rest of us keep rowing, one stroke after another after another. I see the cocks staring out at the grim walls of green water that keep on coming. I see the concern in his face. We are on the edge. If the splashy waves increase in size or come closer together, we will be swamped. He calls for us to row hard. We obey his command. It is then, when we are on the brink of disaster, that I see the kraken arcing through the water. Slivers of cloud-filtered sunlight strew highlights across the creature's slate-coloured skin. I try to call out to my crewmates, but my face is numb with cold and no sound emerges. The titan disappears as silently as it appeared, but rather than disturbing me, I feel a sense of peace. Poseidon is watching over us. For five hours we battle on, soaked to the bone, cold to the marrow, before reaching the calmer waters surrounding the summer isles. Fourteen hours and twenty minutes after leaving Stornoway, we come around the point of Ullapool, and there on the beach, on the edge of the cheering crowd, Lazarus stands waiting for me. My old man of the sea, his face weathered, leathered and lined. This part of the story makes me think that this is a story about Lorraine. <laughs> I know, and I know Lorraine has rode the Minch for MS awareness. So until this point, I wasn't convinced that Lazarus was her partner, but something now makes me wonder if maybe he is. Or she's at least used her own experiences as, as um, fodder for a story. She's a sea skiff rower as well um, and I've had a good chat with her about it so because there's a whole set of communities along the coasts in Scotland who row on these sea boats these sort of sea skiffs many of the communities build them themselves you can buy the kit you can raise the money buy the kit and then the community works together to build these boats and I know I first rode on them in on Ling and I know Wellapool has one and she rose on it. So that makes me think how much of this is auto fiction. But anyway, we'll leave that there. But it's interesting that she too is having that moment in the sea, that kind of turning point at the sea rather than, you know, swimming or finding the, yourself fighting the tides. She's doing it in a boat. And it's, it's hard to actually compute the length of time. I mean, 14 hours and 20 minutes rowing constantly. Seems staggering amount of time, doesn't it? It is a long time. And also, you know, it makes me think of those who swim across the channel because as much as you can plan for tides, 
you can't, you know, you, you plan for the tides, knowing that the tide's turning and you're going to have to work harder, but the conditions in the sea slow you and wave depths and wind changes your ability to cut through it. I know that's true in a boat as well. So, you know, I remember watching one of these skiff races across the Galloway coast or along the Galloway coast and what should have taken, you know, 45 minutes, an hour to get from Garliston up to I think it was the Isle of Whithorn, took about three hours because the wind was against them. And also they were all trying to find the current at that time of day that would help them along, that would push them a little bit faster. So yeah, I think you just never know what you're going to encounter. And it sounds like they weren't planning to be in the boat that long, for sure. But once the tide moves as well, you're in trouble, I think. And, you know, that idea of that seventh wave splashing into the boat made me smile because I grew up on the coast and one of the, the games that we loved to do was jump the waves. And we were always convinced that the seventh wave was always the biggest one. So you'd be counting, and here's the seventh, here's the seventh. And I've never heard that or, or seen that anywhere else. Well, it's definitely something I grew up knowing too. So I'm not sure if I thought it was the biggest, but certainly that waves come in sevens and they get bigger. So that would make sense. But then when we lived in California for a year, as little people, we knew that, that, was, that those, there would be a lull. In fact, we were looking for the lull between the packs of sevens that we could get in or out or do something. So yeah, that's something I always knew too. But the idea that the seventh one would crash over the... I mean, that's a horrifying thought that you're drenched and you're cold and you're still rowing 14 hours later, it sounds a lot worse than drowning in a way, because at least at that point, you know, you're still fighting like mad. And she sounds like she's fighting like mad to the end. Now, can we talk about the Kraken? Because it's not something I have heard much about before coming to Scotland. So I wonder if it's a particularly Scottish thing, or is it just that I haven't had much cause to encounter the Kraken before now? I think it might be Celtic, maybe, Norse. Because I think, is the Kraken not supposed to live in those waters between Iceland and Norway? Is that You might be right, yeah. Memory? It's kind of like a giant octopus in my mind. Yeah, like and kind massive. of blamed for taking ships down and other things. And in, in this story, did you think that Poseidon had had sort of encountered the Kraken and Poseidon had won out? I thought it was another shapeshifter incident where Poseidon had taken the form of the Kraken, maybe. It's interesting because I don't, I mean, from what I know about the Kraken, which is, to be honest, very little. So all of you listening who know more, please tell us is that the Kraken is definitely not a good thing, whereas I think in this story, Poseidon seems to be a good thing. So it felt like the Kraken disappeared because Poseidon was watching out. So the sense of peace prevails because Kraken disappears below the waves, and then she gets this feeling that now we're in Poseidon's hands, it's okay. But I think Poseidon can be pretty fickle. I mean, I think Poseidon, if he doesn't like the boat you're in, can decide to take it down, and is known as a shapeshifter. So... You know, either I think Poseidon's because the Kraken disappears without causing trouble, the sense is Poseidon has seen it off, or else Poseidon took the form of the Kraken and popped up to make sure that they were okay, and the sight of that is of comfort. Earlier in the story, her husband says prayers to Poseidon, really. I think you do have to placate Poseidon and offer sacrifice too. So maybe that's where the idea, I think some of the Pacific Islander communities, when they, they, they bring in their catch of fish, they'll always return a certain amount to the sea as an offering. Now, I'm sure it's not to Poseidon, but that idea of, you know, only taking what you need, being grateful for it and saying prayers of thanks. That makes, I'll remember that, Claire, the next time we get in the water in the freezing cold, we'll just say a little 
Thank you. We can donate one of our scones. <laughs> Keep us safe. <laughs> we did once donate our scones to two other swimmers who were swimming in much braver circumstances with far less clothing than us and for a far longer time. So we decided they deserve the scones rather than us. We left them in their shoes. Um, and I was going to say, I love the way this ends. I love the way Lazarus comes back waiting for her at the end, you know, cheering. Get that real sense of relief at her and joy at her seeing him. And it's a lovely mirror to him waking, having been sort of brought back and having a laugh about, you know, whatever his brain scan or him being Lazarus. And, you know, he's there smiling as well. Her having gone through, maybe not as difficult, but it sounds like it got pretty hairy there. Yeah, it's a beautiful image. And in some ways, although the story is about the sea, it feels like underpinning it, it's a story about relationships. Because, of course, the, the way we started, you know, talking about Bellany, she's letting him go or she's not stopping him or asking him to not go. And so there's something in that. We know something about them, too, as a couple that's really important, I think, that isn't said and isn't needed to be said. And, of course, he's let her go, too. Yeah, and I was going to say, likewise, there seems to be space for both of them to do what they need to do. But they both seem to have that connection with the sea. Uh, the kind of this feels a really easy pairing, which um, which is what we all wish for, and a really lovely connection actually to the poem. So, shall we move to the poem? Yes, please. Um, which is called "When the Whales Beached." On that day of spades, engraving lines and inlets in the sand, so that we could begin the slow unmooring of those black shapes to the waves. It was hard to think of anything but how soon my grandmother had followed her husband earthwards. Love, and yet so much more than. The quiet union of sometimes being the one to lead, sometimes to follow. And these who softly climbed the aching stair of shore together and didn't fall short. How we stood by as if we'd nothing to say when love I did. I do. So uh, I love the starting image of this, the day that, you know, when whales come ashore, I assume that's what he means. Yeah, I I took that as well. That rescue operation of trying to save them and then flips it into his grandparents' relationship, which I find a very moving metaphor, really, of how you stick together. And I think that is true of, of whales. One might beach because they're unwell. That's often the reason that, that a whale will beach. But the rest of the pod will also beach themselves in sympathy and support because they are they are a family, effectively, a pod. And it's a kind of that, those words, quiet union. It's a, it's a, it's a beautiful way of putting how wordlessly or silently we create these bonds and these sort of understandings. And we just move, sometimes couples, and certainly these two, move together through this world um, without having to articulate how it's working or why it's working. It just works out. I noticed as well, um, when I was was reading this poem, the line, um, my grandmother had followed her husband earthwards. And that stuck with me because when I've seen that expressed before, it's been had followed heavenwards or upwards or skywards and I I just noticed that that connection was you know earthly yeah I was it made me think of a burial really yeah Um, exactly 
the inverse is true when you're talking about walking ashore, because you think of walking ashore as being kind of downhill or certainly flat, and yet it's described as the aching stare of shore together. And I, you know, either it's an image of walking to the shore, or for me, it's that idea of it's a very long path, and it is a, it is, it is um, a set of stairs that you have to climb one at a time together. One has to be in front and one has to be in back. You know, it's that way of climbing a stair that you, you can't walk side by side. I'm not sure what didn't fall short means. I mean, didn't didn't come apart or didn't separate or I don't know. What do you take that to mean? I thought it was more, you know, didn't disappoint each other, didn't fall short of each other's expectations, despite the you know, I, I I was thinking of the stare, you know, of, of the journey through life together. And, you know, sometimes it can feel like an uphill climb. And, you know, along the way, some people don't make that together as a couple for whatever reason, um, you know, and they, they fall fall away from from that climb, as it were. Um, but in this case, I t- didn't fall short to be, you know, didn't fail the test, as it were. Yeah. And then that last, what you can't see is that the poem is in couplets. Please go and find it on, on the Open Book website, but which is a beautiful form, really, to talk about a relationship of two people. Um, because, of course, it's two and then a space and two and a space and two and a space, which is how couples present themselves in the world, I think, or certainly these two will have um, without room necessarily for others between them, which is which is a which is a lovely thing when poems form follows their subject. But I was gonna ask about the last couplet really, how we stood by as if we'd nothing to say when love I did, I do is a beautiful way to end it. But is it this idea that a family or others watch these couples and don't comment on it, don't laud it, you know, or applaud it in any way, or recognize it for what it is? Or it becomes unremarkable because of the day-to-dayness of it, because it is a fixed. I mean, I'm I'm guessing that the, or I'm I'm assuming that the grandfather and grandmother, the sort of heads of the family, and and the we, are all younger, and so they've never known anything other than them together as a s- solid couple, perhaps, and so they don't think to say anything about it because it is what it is, and it's the norm and unremarkable. And it certainly is the norm for that generation, or at least the generation of my grandparents who were married 70 years um, and lived into their 90s. So yeah, we took it for granted that they were, you know, they worked well together. And when in truth, you know, they couldn't have been, they're really different characters, but they they did find this space for each other. They did work around each other. Maybe a, a bit like Neil we didn't really reflect on that until they were gone, I think, or at least till one of them was gone and then the other was a changed person because of it and followed very shortly after. So yeah, the idea of not seeing it. Whereas of course the poem begins with this rescue mission, you know, something that becomes newsworthy and is something we do pay attention to. And has an immediacy and a, and a time frame, you know, an, an imperative because you have to move fast and you have to, you have to get these whales saved quickly. Whereas the the rest, the, the the lifelong relationship and the leaving seems much slower and less urgent. And and of course, you know, when Wales Beach res- rescuers appear and people come to help, maybe this is about the quiet when people don't come to appear to to rescue when people don't 
come to help. And it's just that keeping going that isn't lauded, that doesn't make the news. And this poem, the, the last couple of words, or the last four words I did, I do feels like it's doing what he has noted has never been done, which is noticing, you know, having something to say about it, rather than the sort of shiny whales being rescued. And and obviously the, the echo of the wedding vow in the I do, I think is a really lovely through sickness and who and health till death as do part or whatever the wording is sort of came to, to my mind when I read that I did I do yeah exactly and it feels like it's a beautiful way of doing the thing that you're writing about when, of noting it putting it on a piece of paper and publishing it in a book making it a real thing and it's a different so it, it's a lovely combination I think in the way with Lorraine's story about a couple that makes space for each other one following one leading um, and the quietness of what's happening underneath that story, all the wildness of the rescues in both parts of the stories, the drowning and the rowing. And, and yet the underpinning of that is a kind of steadiness or what feels like steadiness, because I think only from steadiness can you get that kind of trusting laughter at your oneself, a sort of peacefulness in that space that's being acknowledged in that story in a way that I think Neil is acknowledging something here too. Yeah, I mean, I, I just love that poem. It's it's beautiful. I've, I've read it a, a few times and every time I come back to it, it gives me that sort of warm contentment to read it again. Thank you to Neil for letting us have it and read it and discuss it. And um, I commend the whole of his first collection and the second too. Um, but the first was really the winner of the Edwin Morgan Prize a few years ago. Go find his work if you don't know it. I think that's all from us today. Thank you again for letting us be in your ears and listening to our discussion of the sea. And we look forward to being with you again soon. 